Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm joined today by Eugene L. Meyer, the editor of our quarterly B'nai B'rith magazine and a former Washington Post reporter, 34 years at the Post, and editor. Today, we'll be talking about Gene's new book, Five for Freedom, the African-American Soldiers in John Brown's Army, about the lives and deaths and legacies of these forgotten figures who went with the famed abolitionist in an ill-fated raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, then Virginia, Correct. in 1859. Gene, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, I, as a child, I remember hearing about John Brown for the first time, I think, in uh, one of the verses of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, and always always wondered who was John Brown, and of course, as I got older, um, came to know a little more about about the raid at Harper's Ferry. So there's a lot that's known about John Brown, uh, but certainly uh, a lot less known about those who came with him in that raiding party uh, that day, or in those days leading up to, and then the raid itself. So how did you choose this as a subject to write a book about? Sure. Well, it started in 2000 when I covered a a ceremony at a, at a cemetery outside of Washington. It was a dedication of a plaque to one of the five, Osborne Perry Anderson. And uh, uh, he was an, a new figure to me, but uh, some of his, one of his collateral descendants was, was there, and I learned about him, and I learned about the other four for the first time. And um, I was fascinated. And it was, a, it was a brief story. It ran inside the metro section of the Post. Uh, probably not a lot of people saw it. Um, but it made a big impression on me. So when I left the Post in 2004, I did a long article for the Washington Post magazine about him called Soul Survivor. He was, he was in, in fact, the sole survivor of the raid on Harper's Ferry, and he wrote the only insider account of the raid. And, um, uh, and he was uh, very closely allied with a woman named Marianne Shad Carey. He had gone to Canada after the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, and she was the first African-American uh, publisher and a female publisher and editor in North America. And he worked for her as a printer. They were both from southeastern Pennsylvania. And he seemed to follow everywhere. And I thought, well, maybe there was more to their relationship. So a few years later, I went to her archives at Howard University, a slim number of her papers were there, found nothing to support my speculation. What I did find was some letters that she had published in the Provincial Freeman, her newspaper, that were written by John Copeland, another one of the five, to his family back in Oberlin, um, just before he was executed on December 16th, 1859. And they were heart-wrenching letters. And I had an epiphany. I thought, there's a story here, but it has to be about all five. And thus was born the idea for Five for Freedom. Now, I had spoken to, in, in preparation for the magazine article, I had spoken to Stephen Oates, who was a, a prominent John Brown biographer. And I asked him, I said, why isn't there more about about um, Osborne Perrianis specifically, and he said, well, a couple reasons. Uh, one was just racism, and uh, he had been dismissively treated by a number of even sympathetic brown historians, and the other reason was that there's so little known about him, and I took both of those as a challenge. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, and, um, and I expanded an earlier book proposal that was just about Anderson to encompass all five, and uh, who had been overshadowed for nearly 160 years by Brown, such a towering figure, the martyred, and you know the subject of the song that you learned about as, as a youngster, and um, and thus was born uh, Five for Freedom: The African American Soldiers in John Brown's Army. 
1859, a couple of years before the Civil War breaks out. But you could say that the, the raid on Harper's Ferry was kind of a tipping point uh, in terms of the, where the country was going uh, at, at that particular time. The, the objective of the raid uh, was to, to spark a slave rebellion, uh, at least in, in large part. Um, how did the five that you write about, how did they hear about this? Now, we're, you're living in a time when you can mail a letter and get a letter, I suppose, uh, but it takes a long time. Uh, there's no other way to communicate. How did the five wind up uh, participating with, with Brown in this, in this effort? Well, they, they came to John Brown uh, by different routes, and uh, <clears throat> Osborne Anderson had been in Chatham, Ontario, uh, when Brown in uh, May 1858 held a, um, a convention to, uh, to approve a, a provisional constitution for the free black republic he hoped to establish in the Appalachian Mountains. And he, in fact, was the only one from uh, Chatham who went to Harpers Ferry, so he knew Brown from there. Uh, two of the men uh, came from Oberlin, Ohio, uh, one of them, Louis Leary, had heard Brown speak at a rally in uh, northeastern Ohio, and he recruited his uh, uh, John Copeland, uh, by whom he was related through marriage, and that's how they came to uh, to join with Brown. Shields Green was a fugitive slave from Charleston, South Carolina, who had somehow found his way to Rochester, New York, and had become friends with Frederick Douglass, in fact, stayed with him in his home. And there he met Brown and learned a little bit about what Brown had in his mind. And Dangerfield Newby is a very interesting and tragic uh, character because uh, he uh, had, uh, he was a, a free man of color, um, and he had uh, established a uh, in effect, a marriage with a, a slave woman named Harriet, and they had as many as seven children. And she uh, was in the uh, she was owned by a, a man and a doctor in, in um, Brentville, Virginia, who was planning to sell her because he was in need of funds and sell her and the children. And so Dangerfield Newby, uh, who had been in Ohio, he was originally from uh, from Virginia. But he and his family were in Ohio, not his immediate family, but his parents and siblings. So he joined up with Brown in an effort to liberate his enslaved wife and their children. And um, in fact, during the spring and summer of 1859, she had written him three letters, uh, each one more desperate than the last, saying, Dangerfield, you are my one bright hope, and please come and, and, you know, and, and come soon before Master sells me and the children. And tragically, he was killed on the streets of Harpers Ferry on the second day, October 17th, 1859. And, and she and the children were sold south. And and, uh, and that's a very sad part of the story. Uh, Douglas, um, when hearing about this plan, um, wasn't wasn't very encouraging because he, he felt this would not succeed. What can you tell us about that? Right. Uh, well, John Brown was hoping to, uh, uh, hoping to recruit a, a, a national figure, um, for his little army, and he sought to uh, enlist Frederick Douglass and arranged to have a meeting with Douglass at an abandoned quarry outside of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania in August 1859. Douglass came down with Shields Green, and actually the parley lasted a whole weekend. They talked for hours and hours, and Douglass said, uh, you know, you were walking into a perfect steel trap, and he was convinced, rightly so, that it would not succeed. And so he went back to Rochester at the end of their long meeting, he turned to Shields Green and he said, you know, wh what do you want to do? And Shields Green famously said, 
well, not so famously because his story's not that well known, but maybe now more so. He said, I think I'll go with the old man. And in fact, he did. He went to Harpers Ferry uh, with John Brown, first to the Kennedy Farmhouse in uh, nearby Maryland, where they all converged and prepared for the raid. And he was captured and he was uh, tried and convicted and executed along with John Copeland on December 16, 1859. The, the trail of... Uh, of what happened to these five, um, I, I would have thought, you know, over the years uh, would have kind of uh, just been eclipsed by time. Um, but you were able to, to track down these stories. Um, there are descendants. Um, what kind of contact did you have with them? And what did they know? Well, that was interesting because the centennial of the John Brown raid in 1959 was literally a whitewash affair. In the 150 or so pictures I looked at that the Park Service took, there wasn't one person of color. Um, and essentially, the uh, uh, John Brown was treated as a villain. Uh, the uh, Civil War reenactors um, you know, recaptured him in a mock, what they called a sham battle, and people cheered. They cheered the fact that uh, that John Brown was captured. They had no sympathy for the for the for the enslaved people. He was trying to liberate. Well, you know, fast forward to uh, 2009, the sesquicentennial, and it's a different era. Uh, the first African American uh, president of the United States and the Park Service had also changed quite a bit, and they made a great effort to reach out to descendants on all sides. So I started with a list of descendants from the Park Service at Harpers Ferry, and I was able to uh, reach out to quite a few um, from as close as, you know, our metropolitan area here in Washington, D.C., to as far as Cannibal, Utah, population 160, um, where I I, I met uh, and spent some time with Ashton Robinson, a descendant of Dangerfield Newby, who lives two miles off the pavement in this uh, very um, remote outpost, I would say. The stories pass down through time. Well, yes and no. I mean, they, um, Ashton Robinson, uh, both his parents uh, went to a segregated high school, Dunbar in D.C., a very famous high school. And they were fair-skinned, and they passed for white. They moved north. And so Ashton didn't know until he was in his mid-40s that he was African-American, much less that he was descended from Dangerfield Newby. So there were generations and layers upon layers of lies, really. And uh, so he's had quite an emotional uh, journey since he's learned about um, who he is and what he is and dealing with these existential questions and, and also with the story of Dangerfield Newby and the tragedy of his life and death. And uh, uh, what kind of response, I'm just curious, when you contacted the descendants, it was kind of out of the blue, um, uh, there must have been, uh, uh, must have been welcoming clearly, but uh, tell me about the reaction that you, that you got. Well, in general, very receptive. Um, there was one descendant of Dangerfield Newby who was both um, generous and proprietary uh, with her family's information. Uh, but she was very kind. She directed me to the, uh, to the uh, area where uh, her ancestors had been enslaved. This was in Fauquier County in, in uh, northern Virginia, I guess you'd say, about an hour's drive from Washington. Um, and uh, I talked to descendants of, uh, of uh, John Copeland, uh, both in... Indiana and um, uh, Chicago and 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 closer to closer to here, and uh, they were very forthcoming and very helpful. And of course, Ashton Robinson was a treasure trove. He very generously shared all the family history that he'd spent 25 years um, digging up since he uh, had this epiphany and learned who he was and who he was descended from. 
And so in general, they were very cooperative. Now I, I reached a, a descendant of Hayward Shepherd. He was, he worked, he was a, a free man of color from Winchester, worked for the railroad, and he was not with Brown. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, Brown's uh, men ordered him to stop when they, uh, the night of the raid, and he didn't. And so he was shot in the back, and he died. And um, ironically, uh, he became a hero for those who were trying to uh, perpetuate the myth of the Old South and the faithful slave. And there was actually a memorial dedicated to him in 1931 at Harper's Ferry uh, by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So I reached one of his descendants in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Very nice gentleman, uh, Gil Shepard. And he thought that... um, that uh, Hayward Shepard was with John Brown. And I had to sort of, you know, tell him, no, that that wasn't really the case. He just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I actually found his grave, which was quite exciting. You know, these are the little surprises that you unearth as you do your research because people thought he was buried somewhere in Winchester, but nobody knew where. And he's actually interred in uh, Woodlawn Cemetery in southeast Washington, D.C. So that was, as a researcher, that that was exciting. Now, we talked about the centennial of the raid and then the sesquicentennial and how history is, is being, um, uh, shall we say, the, the blind spots are being rectified. Um, what impact do you think your book, your research, will have now on future historians uh, who will be writing, you know, we have the 200th anniversary of the raid uh, you've you've really now provided a great deal of information about these five African Americans. What impact do you think it'll have? Well, I hope that um, you know that uh, readers, not just historians, will will view the this uh, uh, really important event in American history uh, through a different lens, and they won't just see John Brown, the you know the martyred uh, abolitionist, but they'll see uh, these five men as well as the others who were. Uh, or white, and some of them were his sons and, and other folks, um, as individuals who came to Brown um, through different paths and different motivations, and not just lump them all together and sort of, you know, treat them as, as you know, even tertiary characters in this drama. I think it's important that, uh, uh, that these hidden figures uh, get the recognition that uh, has long been withheld from them, and I'm proud to have been part of that. You talk about hidden figures, uh, you've written about other hidden figures, um, and New York Times now, for example, is is uh, publishing obituaries about uh, many folks uh, who made important contributions to all kinds of of of, of, uh, of disciplines um, and uh, kind of making up for lost time. Um, how important is that? I mean, in, in terms of all of us reaching back. Uh, and, and opening, in effect, um, these these new files on um, so many important people who just have not appeared in, in our history in any way. Well, I think it's very important. And uh, primarily, I think the Times is focused on, on women who made great contributions and uh, were little noted. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just a reflection of the uh, the sexism that um, you know permeated society for so many decades, and uh, but there are also stories of extraordinary, ordinary people that need to be told, and I think that's you know that's also a, a challenge and an important uh, important thing for writers to uh, take on. Well, uh, Gene, I, I think uh, what you've done here in uh, highlighting uh, these stories 
uh, and bringing it to light uh, and adding so much more to the story of a very seminal event in our history, in our nation's history, um, paying uh, uh, the, the due to, to these folks who made a sacrifice. We talk about the executions. You mentioned a couple. Uh, this, uh, the outcome wasn't uh, exactly as, uh, as they had, uh, had hoped. Uh, but to talk about the role that they played in this very important uh, chapter in American history is, is extremely important. What's next on your agenda? What are you, uh, what are you looking at next? Well, I'm, I'm uh, thinking of a few things. I actually had started working on a memoir uh, before this project uh, came together. And I'm also interested in the, in the African-American senators and congressmen that uh, were elected to Congress um, during the Reconstruction period. I, I'm curious to know whether they... Um, what their interactions were. You know, we have the Congressional Black Caucus as sort of a political force in our current, uh, our current environment, and I don't know enough yet as to whether anything like that existed at the time. And uh, so that's something I'm looking into. And, um, uh, you know, I could pick up my memoir and we'll see about that. I think it's important for people to know that there is real news. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I... I lived uh, as a reporter through tumultuous times and did lots of interesting things. Uh, the things are probably more interesting than I am, uh, but that's a that's a, a subject for another day. Well, will we uh, will we meet uh, some hidden figures in in the uh, maybe in your memoir, but in uh, what you're going to be doing about uh, members uh, African American members of Congress and the Reconstruction period? Will there be a lot of people that we? haven't heard about before? Well, possibly. As I say, you know, I'm just sort of just beginning the, the research, and I'm, I've been quite busy doing what we're doing now, talking about, about uh, the, the, uh, the five African-Americans with John Brown, and also, um, you know, the original sin of slavery, which uh, uh, John Brown said, you know, only by blood uh, would this be purged. And so we had a civil war with 750,000 people died, and, and I think that we still have a ways to go. So... Um, so I'm, that's the story I'm telling right now and focusing on primarily. Gene, thank you. Thanks again for joining us uh, today. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast. Please visit our website, vinaybrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Eugene L. Meyer. I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. <laughs>